this message today is the mission of the church. Acts chapter 1. So if you will, if you can, if you're able to, please stand for the reading of the Word of God. As you find your place there, it should be Acts should be the fifth book in your Bible. Or I mean in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven. After he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen, to these he also presented himself alive after his suffering, by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of forty days, and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you, would, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or epochs which the, the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria, in all Judea and Samaria, excuse me, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Verse 9, and after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood, behind, or stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has, taken up from, who, who, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come just in the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. You can be seated. Father, we pray that you would bless the, uh, the preaching of your word. Get me out of the way, Lord, and help me to, to preach uh, as a dying man to dying people. We pray these things in faith in Jesus' name. Amen. So here we are in the book of Acts. And, and the book of Acts is the second writing of Luke in our Bibles. We see Luke 1 and we see Acts chapter 1 begin in very similar ways. And we know that the recipient of uh, the Gospel of Luke and, and the book of the Acts of the Apostles uh, goes to a man named Theophilus. We don't, we don't know much about this guy, but we know that he is highly esteemed by Luke. And we know that his name means uh, loved by God or a friend of God. And we find here in the first two verses of Acts chapter 1 a bridge. It's a bridge connecting Luke's Gospel to the, to the book of Acts. About all the things uh, I wrote to you, I composed the office about all the things that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he chosen. This bridge connects all that Jesus began to do and teach until he was taken, up, taken away to all that the early church had done after they were filled with the Holy Spirit and given a mission to advance the kingdom of God to the ends of the world. And as I've considered our mission uh, as a local church, God has drawn my heart to the book of Acts. And I'm sure that many pastors, I'm sure many planters, I'm sure many churches have preached this message of mission before from this text. And honestly, I'm just glad that I've not come up with anything new uh, or anything uh, out of the ordinary. So if that ever happens, if I begin to say that I've got some new revelation or any kind of new ordin or out of the ordinary things, this is when you guys need to fire me and get me out of here and find you a different guy, okay? 
But I've been able to see our mission, our mission as a Mago day in this text. And I've been able to see what the mission of the church has been throughout the centuries. And I hope as we embark through these 11 verses, you will also discover what our mission is at a Mago day. Before we begin at our first point, I want us to fix our eyes here on verse 3. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a 40 days and speaking of the things, listen here, concerning the kingdom of God. So in this message, I'm going to refer to the kingdom of God quite frequently. And the kingdom of God that is uh, referred to here in this text is, is not the final rule and reign of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, as he comes to, to conquer the enemies uh, and so on. It's the spiritual reign. It is the spiritual rule and reign of Jesus Christ in the hearts of those who believe. So it's not this conquering Messiah reign, but it is the spiritual reign. Of Jesus Christ in the hearts of all those who believe. So it is the realm of salvation is what he's referring to in the kingdom of God. So the, the kingdom of God is referred to in this message as an advancement. It advances as the gospel goes forth into uncharted territories. Setting captives free from, from the bondage of sin and death. And, and causing people to recognize Jesus as Savior and Lord. And in this message we're going to see four observations about this mission. We're going to see four observations. And so our first observation about this mission that Jesus is calling us, calling his apostles and us into is that this mission is Holy Spirit empowered. So point one, this mission is Holy Spirit empowered. We see here in verses four and five, a command and a promise that Jesus gives to his apostles. He says, don't leave Jerusalem. Wait for what the father has promised. Which, he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So Jesus is saying, stay. Stay here and wait for what the Father has promised, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So why do they need to wait, though? I mean, after all, they are apostles, right? They've been with Jesus for, for three years. I mean, you would think, like, don't they know enough? They almost have a bachelor's degree, right? Aren't they equipped enough? Aren't they as ready as they're ever going to be? What do they need to wait for? I mean, like, you should sling them out. They, they've been around their long-term interns, man. And I think that verse 6 gives us pretty incredible insight into why Jesus would say to wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And as we see in the Gospels, we know that the apostles uh, have very strong political views. They have their personal interest and they have their um, personal privileges and positions in mind. They are very loyal Jews who long for the day that their enemies are defeated and that the Messiah rules. This is what they're looking forward to, this political rule and reign of the Messiah. And so often they miss the necessity of the spiritual kingdom of God and the change of hearts that first needed to take place. I mean, after all, these apostles, they are humans, right? After all, they are prone to forget. And after all, they are prone to be selfish. But most importantly here, I think what we need to see is, is that the apostles are, are powerless apart from the Holy Spirit. In all gentleness, Jesus responds there in verse 7 and 8 to, their, um, to the reply of Jesus restoring the kingdom to Israel. He responds with, it's not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed on his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses in both Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria. And even to the remotest parts of the earth. Did you hear that? The answering the apostles 
question of him being the conquering Messiah at this point in time. Jesus says that there are times and there are seasons that are fixed by the authority of Almighty God that they that they don't need to know anything about. That there are seasons and times that only God knows. There are seasons and times that, that all, Almighty God has fixed by His authority that, that are just left to speculation. And Jesus calls them to action. And He says, don't you worry about the future. You should be more present being busy in the present right now. And the apostles are being entrusted with the mission here, and, and they needed to not be concerned about the divine plan that God had that they couldn't control. What they needed to do was to be faithful with what was entrusted to them and begin to share God's message of the spiritual kingdom. The kingdom that's available to all who repent of their sins and embrace Christ with childlike faith. But without the fulfillment of the promise of the Holy Spirit, they could do nothing. They could never continue what Jesus started. And I want you guys to know this. The power of the church does not come from man. It doesn't matter um, how elegant or how gifted the speaker is. It doesn't matter how elegant or how gifted the singer is or how elegant or how gifted the elder board is. The power of the church does not come from man, but it comes from God through the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. Yes, these men are apostles Yes, I know that these men spoke in languages that they never learned before. Yes, I know that these men, these men healed people. Yes, I know that these men did extraordinary things. Yes, I know that they are apostles. But let me remind you that these are just ordinary men who are given particular gifts from an extraordinary God through the Holy Spirit. Yes, sir. So back to verse 4. Don't leave Jerusalem. Wait for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Not many days from now. See, a statement like this, uh, for those of us that have read through the Bible or, or read the Gospels, a statement like this causes our minds to be drawn back to the Gospels. We, we think of John the Baptist uh, prophesying of the coming of the Holy Spirit and judgment. We think of Jesus sharing with his disciples that he, that he would send a helper, the Spirit of truth, that he would be with them forever, that he would not leave them as orphans. We think of Jesus, that, how he promised that this helper, the Holy Spirit, would abide with us and be in us who believed. That he promised that this helper, the Holy Spirit sent by the Father in Jesus' name, would bring to remembrance all that Jesus had spoke to the apostles. That, that he promised that the, the helper, the Holy Spirit, would testify him uh, about him. Remember, Jesus said that if he doesn't go away, the helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come. But Jesus promised that when he went away, he would send the Holy Spirit. And that the Holy Spirit would convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Jesus promised that the Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, would guide them into all truth. And that he would glorify Jesus, for he would take of the thanks of Jesus and disclose it to the apostles. We see these in, in John 14, 15, and 16. So we see why it's so imperative that the apostles remain in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes. It is crucial that they wait because, again, without the Holy Spirit indwelling them, they are powerless. What power do the apostles have to convict the world of sin, of, of righteousness, and of judgment? What power do the apostles have to, to bring to remembrance all, capital A-L-L, all that Jesus said to them? What power do the apostles have to, to walk in the truth? What power do the apostles have to be comforted in the persecution that's waiting for them? They're going to go through some trials, man. What power do they have if it's not the power of the Holy Spirit? So Jesus says, wait, stay here, wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit, 
And for those of us that have read the book of Acts, we know that there are going to be trials, man. There's going to be troubles. There's going to be tasks that are impossible for the Holy Spirit or for the for the apostles to accomplish alone. They need the Holy Spirit. And it's a great feat to continue what Jesus started. So they must be filled first with the supernatural. They must be empowered to do great things through the Holy Spirit. They have to wait for the helper to come. Remember, the book of Acts tells us what Jesus continued to do through his spiritual body, which is the church. And remember that Jesus tells us in John chapter 10, verse 16, that I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. The kingdom of God cannot just stop in Jerusalem. The rule and reign of Jesus Christ and in the hearts of all who believe cannot be bound to one geographical location. The kingdom of God must advance. And this leads us to our second observation about this mission. This mission advances the kingdom of God through their witness there in verse 8. We see here in the tail end of of verse 8, let me just read it. You shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. There are some observations here in this tail end of verse 8 that are clearly seen in this verse. And there's also some implications that we need to dig out. So first, Jesus says, after the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you shall be my witnesses. So what exactly is a witness? In in a legal sense, let me just put it this way. If I witness a man dressed in all black um, mug a woman on Farnham Street for her purse, he he pushes her down, he steals her purse, and he takes off running. If I witness this happen and I walk up to this woman and and I help her up off the ground and I pick up my phone and I call the police and the police come and and they show up and they they make a report and they record me as a witness and, and, and they go on their way. Well, later on that night, the police cars are driving through town, and they're doing what they do. They're patrolling, and they, they come across a car that did fail to use their turn signal. And so they pull the car over, and they walk up to the car. It's a guy dressed in all black, and he's got a dozen purses in the back seat, and one of them belongs to that lady. So they take the man to jail, and then, uh, and then a few weeks or a few months or however long they decide to get the man into trial. What's going to happen to me, the man who helped the lady up off the ground and called the police? Testify. They're going to call me in to be a witness, right? They're going to call me in to be a witness. And, and let me ask you this. Like, is the court interested in, in any kind of speculating that I would do? Are they interested in me speculating, speculating about what I may have seen or what I may have heard? Is the court interested in me providing theories about what might have happened? Why this man could have done what he did? They're not interested in that at all. Does the judge want my ideas? Does he want my opinions? Absolutely not. What the court wants from me is to provide what I know. They want a witness. They want an honest account of what I've seen with my eyes, what I've heard with my ears, what I've smelled with my nose, what I've felt with my hands, and what I know to be certain. They want a witness. And Jesus wants a witness. Amen. And he's sending the apostles out as witnesses here. Look, listen here, man. The apostles have sat under the most brilliant teacher to ever walk the face of the earth. They have heard his teaching while they sat next to him physically. They have seen Jesus perform miracles. I mean, for crying out loud, they carried the bread and the fish that fed the multitude. They, they saw him walk on water. They saw Lazarus rise from the dead. They had a conversation with the dead guy that was raised from the dead. Uh, I mean, they watched Jesus give sight to the blind. They, they've witnessed Jesus do mighty things. 
They ate a final meal with Jesus. They were with Jesus in the garden when he was betrayed by Judas with a kiss and was arrested. When the other apostles scattered out of fear, John watched as Jesus was mocked, rejected, punched, spit on. He watched the crown of thorns be twisted up and shoved on his head. He watched him be beaten with cords and with whips, his flesh torn apart. John watched as he carried the cross to Calvary, bearing the weight of the sins of the world upon his shoulders. John heard Jesus as he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? John witnessed Jesus die on that cross between two thieves. John saw blood and water pour from a spear that was driven into his side. John was there when Jesus told him, Behold, this is your mother. Mother, this is your son. Though not apostles, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus buried Jesus in Joseph's tomb where he lay dead for three days. And in a historic moment, Peter and John foot raced to the tomb after Mary Magdalene reported that the stone had been rolled away. Peter and John saw with their eyes that the temple was empty. They saw the linens wrapping or the linen wrappings laying there and the face cloth folded up. The disciples saw the wounds in the hands and the feet of Jesus when he appeared to them in a closed room in his resurrected body. For crying out loud, Thomas stuck his hands in his side. Tangible Jesus. They felt it. They saw it. They witnessed it. They they ate breakfast with Jesus on a beach after he resurrected. For 40 days they listened to Jesus teach about the kingdom of God until he ascended to heaven. These apostles lived and learned with Jesus for three years. They saw him die. They saw him resurrect. They felt him resurrect. They are the perfect witnesses. Amen. They are who the prosecuting attorney wants in the stand when he's making a case. Right. There's no better men than they to continue the work that Jesus began. Jesus said that they will be his witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Yes, it's obvious here that Jesus is commanding that the gospel spreads into all these geographical locations. And it does exactly that. And in the book of Acts, we see the, the story progress as the kingdom of God is advanced from Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria and all the way into Rome. And glory to God that the gospel is, is penetrating even the most remote parts of the earth. However, that's not all that Jesus had in mind here. Where there's differing geographical locations, where there is differing geographical locations, what also is there going to be there? There's going to be different people groups, right? There's going to be different nations, different philosophies, different religions, different ethnicities, different races. There's going to be more than just Jewish people. Jesus is saying to them, be my witnesses to the furthest corners of the world. Let every nation, tribe, tongue, and people know that I am the Savior of the world. Go after my other sheep. They're all made in the image of God. They have all fallen short of the glory of God. And they all desperately need me as a Redeemer. It would take some time, actually, for the apostles to understand this and drop their prejudices of the the Gentiles. But eventually they would see that the kingdom of God incorporates a variety of different people. I'm talking both Jew and Gentile, both slave and free, both male and female, both black and white, both brown and red. And pretty soon the apostles are going to be singing black and yellow, red and white. All are precious in his sight. Amen. And when Jesus calls them to be witnesses, there's another implication here to that word. He's not only calling them to speak what they know about Jesus, he's calling them to give up their lives for the advancement of the kingdom of God. See, the word witness here is where we get our English word martyr. 
It's literally one who dies for their faith. He's calling them to be martyrs. He's calling them to give up their lives, their well-being, their safety, and their comfort for the sake of the gospel. They were to be witnesses everywhere that they went. In the good times and in the bad, in persecution and in freedom, they were to tell the truth of what they knew, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that nobody can go to the Father except through Him. And the thing is, what Jesus was calling them to do is to start right there where where they were, right there in the very place with the very people who killed Jesus Himself. Start here, then go here, then go there. Now that... That, beloved, is a super dangerous calling. It's a glorious calling. It's a noble calling. It's a calling that we're all called into. And here we find our third observation. That this mission is directed by Christ, who is in heaven. Fix your eyes on verse 9. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. We see a pretty marvelous picture here of the ascension by Luke in verse 9. And uh, Jesus is being lifted up into heaven, eventually hidden from them by a cloud. And, and many scholars believe this, and I think that it's definitely true that this cloud is um, kind of a, uh, meant to symbolize the Shekinah, the vis- which is the visible manifestation of God's glory, of His presence, of His approval. It's the cloud that hovered above in the tabernacle which, when, Jesus was, or when the Israel was in the wilderness. The Shekinah is enveloping Jesus here, and it makes sense, actually. And it's pertinent to the ascension as Jesus entered into heaven to the right hand of the Father. And after His ascension, we, we hear these, this rebuke from the angels in verses 10 and 11. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while, uh, while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who, who has been taken up from you into heaven will come just in the same way that you have watched him go into heaven. So we hear this kind of soft rebuke in verse 11, and it has a twofold meaning. One, that Jesus now takes residence in heaven. And two, that Jesus will return. And to the first uh, meaning of this message, Jesus having an, a, a heavenly existence has vital implications that we must understand as Christians. In heaven, Jesus is ruling the universe. 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 27. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the, to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. So we see that Jesus is ruling the universe. We see in heaven that Jesus is saving and interceding for those who believe in Him. Hebrews 7.25 Therefore He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. In heaven, Jesus is advocating for us. 1 John 2.1 My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. In heaven, Jesus is preparing a place for us. He's putting into order all the events necessary for His return. We see that in John 14, 2 and 3. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would not have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. In heaven, Jesus is overseeing the churches. 
He's the head of the church. Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. He put all things in subjection under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. In heaven, Jesus is ruling. In heaven, Jesus is interceding. In heaven, Jesus is saving. In heaven, Jesus is advocating. In heaven, Jesus is preparing. In heaven, Jesus is overseeing. He's not just sitting. Remember, all authority has been given to Jesus. He is in heaven orchestrating and fulfilling His mission right now as we speak. That's comforting to know that Jesus is in charge and orchestrating this mission. There is nothing, and I mean no thing, no height, no depth, no power that can thwart His mission. The mission of glorifying God through the reconciliation and redemption of His people unto the Father. This mission is inevitable. It can't be stopped. It will happen. It's a confident hope. And to the second meaning of the angel's rebuke there in verse 11, we see that Jesus is not going to be in heaven forever. Jesus will return. Then the return of Jesus, is uh, Jesus Christ our Lord, is a pivotal point in history. It's the moment in history in which creation anxiously longs for, waiting eagerly for the revelation or the revealing of the sons of God. In the same way the apostles have seen Jesus ascend into heaven, he will return, coming with the clouds, the glory and the approval of God present. At this time, Jesus will come to gather his bride, the church, who are all those who have believed in Christ unto salvation from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people from all four corners of the world. And he will separate the believers from the unbelievers, the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the tares. All who have trusted in the name of Jesus, both dead and alive, will be given a glorified body, bearing his image perfectly, free from sin, made to worship the King of kings in heaven for all of eternity. Amen. While all those, sadly, all those who have rejected Jesus will pay the consequences of their unbelief, suffering eternal damnation apart from Jesus. And it's when He returns to call us home that He makes all things new. In Revelation 22, verses 3 through 6, we find this beautiful, beautiful passage. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And His bondservants will serve Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their forehead. And there will no longer be any night. And they will have no need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them. And check this out. And they will reign forever and ever. Amen? Christ is directing this mission of making all things new from heaven right now as we speak. What a glorious hope. What a wonderful assurance that we have that the mission of God will prevail. And it is in this mission, the mission of Christ redeeming sinners to himself from all over the world throughout the centuries that he has called us into. God has allowed us as believers to have this small yet enormous part in the mission. And let me tell you, it has, it bears eternal rewards. However, we don't see any lone ranger Christians advancing the kingdom of God in the New Testament, do we? In fact, we see that God has provided both the gospel, the means that people will be saved, and the means that the gospel would be heard and believed. And he does so through the local church. This brings us to our fourth observation in this text. This mission is what we were called into as a church. As we've walked through this text, we've come to understand the mission that Christ has called his apostles into. That this mission is Holy Spirit empowered. 
That this mission advances the kingdom of God through their witness. That this mission is directed by Christ in heaven. If we were to continue to read the book of Acts, we would see that through the apostles, the kingdom of God would advance all the way into Rome. And as we sit here today, I don't think that I have to tell you that the gospel message is penetrating even to the most remote parts of the earth. So what does this tell us? It tells us that sections of scriptures like Acts 1-8 about being witnesses of Christ even to the far corners of the earth. And sections of scripture like Matthew 28-19 about making disciples of all nations. It tells us that these passages, although spoken to the apostles, are not exclusively for them. They are also for us. As the church, it is our commission, it is our calling to fulfill the great commission. To be witnesses of Jesus to the world. And I want you to remember what I said about Lone Ranger Christians. There are none. We see in the New Testament the method that God has decided to use to bring the gospel to the nations. And that is through his local church. See, God uses the local church as the primary means for evangelism. As the primary means for disciple making. As the primary means for equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. As the primary means for other forms of ministry. And that's why it's so vital that Paul planted churches everywhere and anywhere that he could. Because God uses the local church to continue his mission. This is why it's so vital that Paul engaged people with the gospel, that he made disciples, that he established leaders. And when he didn't establish leaders, he sent somebody to go establish leaders, that he sent delegates, that he checked up on the churches that he planted, that he taught the church's theology, that he rebuked them in love, and that he wrote the church's letter. It's, it was so vital for Paul to do all of this because God uses the local church to advance his kingdom unto all ends of the earth. And he's done it for a century, and this is what he's going to continue to do. It's in the local church that missionaries are called by God, that they are equipped, that they are sent out. It's in the local church that pastors are called by God, that they are equipped, that they are sent out. It's in the local church, as Ephesians chapter 4 says, that the saints are equipped for the work of the ministry. It's in the local church that the saints identify how God has called and gifted each of them individually into the body of Christ. And it's in the local church, in the body of Christ, or and in the body of Christ, that the saints are able to fulfill their specific role in advancing the kingdom of God to the ends of the earth throughout generations. See, God uses the local church to fulfill his mission. And that's why church planning is so important. That's why we're here today as Imago Day in this building, gathering together as a local church body. It's to fulfill the mission of God that, that he has called us all into. We're here to glorify God. We're here to equip the saints. We're here to spur one another on to love and good works. We're here to pursue Jesus. We're here to make disciples. We're here to reach our neighbors with the message of the gospel. We're here to do what local churches are meant to do. We're here today as a new church plant to advance the kingdom of God into all the world. And you might say, Tanner, this is our first Sunday service. You're already talking about reaching the world. I think your eyes are a little bit too big for your stomach. What that means, where I'm from, is that you got your eyes are bigger than your stomach. It means that you thought you could eat that, but you couldn't eat it because you didn't have that big of a belly, if that makes sense. So you're saying, man, your eyes are a little bit too big for your stomach. You're already talking about reaching the world. This is our first Sunday. How are we going to do that? I think that you're delirious. And I would say no. <laughs> see, you see, God has called us uh, in some way, shape, or form to advance the kingdom of God into the ends of the world. And we're going to do just that. 
We're going to do that through um, through sending finances, through joining with with teams that reach um, Nebraska, that reach. Uh, that reach the United States, that reach the ends of the world. We'll do it through giving, sending, raising up, however it is that God has called us specifically to do that. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. It starts right here. It starts with us. It starts with you. I'm not a Lone Ranger Christian. No, I can't take on hell with a water pistol. That starts here with us as a local body. As members join together in unity so tightly that we fulfill the call that God has called us to. See, the call is to be witnesses of Jesus. It's to be witnesses of the life, the death, the resurrection, and the transforming power of Jesus. The call is to be one who lays down their life. We're here to be witnesses in our Jerusalem, which is our city. We're here to be witnesses of Jesus in our Judea and Samaria, which is, you know, in our state and our nation. We're, we're here to be witnesses of Jesus to the furthest corners of the earth that God would allow us to reach by his grace. At Imago Day, we say our mission is to multiply disciples and churches that live and look like Jesus wherever we're planted. And that means that we will be his witnesses wherever we live, wherever we work, and wherever we play for the purpose of advancing the kingdom of God. And our mission is nothing new. It's, it's not some fresh idea that we came up with sitting in a living room somewhere. It, it, it's a clear command revealed to us in the scriptures to take the gospel to the ends of the world, beginning right where we are, without excuse. So stay with me here as I close. Wake up if you're sleeping. I must commend us this morning, church. Uh, at Imago Day, that those have been with us since the beginning. You know, over the last year, we've strived earnestly uh, to plant this church. We've stayed together through some pretty tough times. We've stayed together when the numbers were high and when the numbers were low. We've stayed unified. And here we are in our building on our very first Sunday. Well done. Well done. But let me encourage us just because we're here in this building doesn't mean that we stop here. We can't stop here. So many churches get to where they think they want to be, to a building, and then they stop. They do missions inside their church. They evangelize inside their church. They do things inside their church, and they never go outside the walls of their church. We can't stop here. But if we believed Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and recognize it as our mission, we must advance the kingdom of God outside the doors of this building and into this neighborhood into our own neighborhoods, into our workplaces. We shouldn't have to work somewhere very long without people knowing that we're Christians. We we should be advancing the kingdom into every crack and crevice of the city that we can reach in due time. Imago Dei must be witnesses of Jesus into the world, never stopping, never stopping until Christ returns. I hope that after we're... All of us have dissipated or gone off to another calling or another church or whatever it may be. And me and my wife have even left this place and gone to plant another church or gone to do whatever it is that God's called us to do. I hope and pray that when we come back to visit, they won't remember who we are and that Imago Day will still continue to, to reach this neighborhood and reach this city. Imago Day must be witnesses of Jesus in our world. That's our mission. It's, it's, it's what we're about. It's an enormous call. So how are we going to accomplish it? I want us to remember the power that we received the day that we first believed. The power of the Holy Spirit. The power that we received when we were filled with the Holy Spirit when we were saved. And it's by His power, the power of Jesus living in us, that we will advance the kingdom of God as it is directed by Christ in heaven. 
Listen, y'all, we eat an elephant one bite at a time. It's a big task, but we can do it. And it starts right here. It starts right now. It starts with you. It starts with us. All the excuses are off the table. God's called us to be faithful, so let's be faithful in our calling to take the message of the gospel as far as God allows us to.